Well, I would ask you to take your Bibles and open them to Matthew chapter 2. Familiar story for many of you, but we're going to unpack it here today. And it's been a few years since we we looked at this, and there's some review, some things that we've talked about in other settings, and so some of this might not all be new, but we're going to look at it here together um, on this Sunday before Christmas. And I'm, I'm excited about this passage this morning. But before we jump into it, would you just join me in a word of prayer? Pray. Father, I thank you for these great songs that we've been able to sing of your incarnation. I thank you for being reminded of how great you are. Thank you for the gift of the musicians and for the Webster family coming and singing and just the the great talent you've blessed us with in this church. Thank you that we can be blessed by that and, and for the gift of music to be reminded of your majesty. And now as we fall under your word on this Sunday, Lord, may we just truly be uh, built up and equipped and, and encouraged. May this truth really anchor us in a way that, that we've never uh, seen before. It's familiar, Lord. It's a familiar story. But God, I pray that uh, in the familiarity of it that we don't... Uh, lose sight of this truth, and that this truth would anchor us this morning. And I pray this in Christ's most holy name. Amen. You know, there, this particular passage, I, I love this passage. In fact, I was thinking about this uh, last night before I went to bed. I was thinking, if I ever got invited to go speak at the UN at Christmas time, like this would happen, right? But this is the sermon I'd preach. This is it. This is the one. I think this would be the passage I would want to deliver. And uh, because it's a very powerful passage, and what it has included in it is part of the Christmas message that oftentimes we can sing about, but it gets overlooked. There's a lot of truth at at Christmas. There's a lot of truth in the Advent, and lots of things that we've talked about, the, the love, the hope, the joy, the peace that is in Christ, and all that's there. But there's one message that oftentimes doesn't get hammered and at home, and that is the one that's here in Matthew chapter 2. And to kind of set the table for it, I want to remind you of a passage of Scripture that I quote quite frequently up here, and it's Psalm 2. And I quote Psalm 2 a lot in a, in a lot of different sermons. And, uh, and, and the reason why is because of what the message of that psalm is. In fact, let me give you kind of my paraphrase of that psalm. Psalm 2, God is speaking to the kings of the earth, and he says, you know, you guys fight. And why do you fight? Why do you guys fight with each other? Why is there war? Why do nations just go after each other? Here's the reason why. Because they're trying to get a position in the world that God hasn't given to them. They want to be the king of kings. They want to be the Lord of lords. And because they want to be the king of kings and Lord of lords, they fight with each other, and they fight for rules and authority, and they fight for position and glory that the Father has not given to them. You see, he's established his king who will rule the world, who will rule justly and righteously. And because he's established that king, kings of the earth, you better pay homage to him. Because when he comes back, he's coming back with fire. And so you better kiss the sun, he says. You better honor him. You better humble yourself before this king. It's what Psalm 2 teaches. It's a powerful psalm. Powerful song. 
acknowledging that Jesus is the King of Kings. Now, that particular message is embedded in the Christmas story. Right here in Matthew 2, we have these magi coming in, and what are they saying? He's the king. The king of the Jews. And what do we have? A lesser king by the name of Herod, who's freaking out. He now has to face the fact that he doesn't have the role and the authority that he wants to have, that there's another king that's come up from within him, and and, and he's got to pay homage to that king. Does he pay homage to that king? Well, we know how that story ends. No, he doesn't. He tries to kill that baby. He tries to kill that king. He won't kiss the son. And thus he will incur the wrath of God for it when that king comes back. But in this account today, we have a battle between two kings. The king of kings and the lesser king named Herod. And this battle rages out. And it's a very powerful battle because what it is showing the world is that Psalm 2 is real. That at the advent of Jesus, we were not only getting love, hope, joy, peace. We were not only getting our sins forgiven. We were not only getting blessing to the whole world. But the king of the earth had come. And he's establishing his rule and his reign. We're going to see that today. Now, I need to do a little bit of backdrop. Today is going to be a lot of history. You're going to get a lot of background. Because the author, uh, Matthew, anticipates that you would understand this background as you're reading it, and so I want to give it to you. And just by way of kind of beginning some of the background history, let me just tell you a little bit about how Herod became king over Israel and what the term king means. When the Roman Empire would conquer a land, uh, they would then allow a, 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 what they would call a king to rule that land. And they would allow each one of the, the, the states or countries that they conquer to operate kind of like our 50 states. They would have their own set of laws, and as long as their own laws didn't contradict the big federal laws, they could rule them. And, and the, the, the Roman Senate would place a king over that region. Now, before the, uh, uh, um, the Romans came and took over Israel, uh, Israel actually had a lot of different civil wars going on, and the Greeks had some things going on, Egyptians had some things going on. And it happened to be right before the Romans took it that uh, Israel was kind of divided in half, and there was a king there from uh, a Parthenian king, which is, I think, modern-day Iran. Okay? There was a king there, and, uh, and he was ruling. And a man by the name of Mark Antony, you know that name, right? Antony and Cleopatra. Antony came in, and he conquered the Parthenians, who had this little residue in that kingdom there. He conquered them, kicked them out, drove them back east. You need to know this for the story, so just kind of register that. Okay, Mark Antony cleared out the Parthenians, drove them back east. A little foreshadowing, which direction did the Magi come? Okay, so this helps you understand the story a little bit. Drove them back to the east, and they, they, they went back there. And then Mark Antony said... I'm going to establish a ruler over this region, and his name is Herod. And Herod now takes the rule. Okay? So, and he ruled for quite some time. And this occurred about 30 years when Antony cleared out the Parthenians out of Egypt, or I mean out of uh, Israel, um, about 30 years before Jesus was born. So Herod's reigning for a little over 30 years before the birth of Christ. And lots of things happen, and, and we'll discuss some of those in, in a little bit here. But the bottom line is that, that he begins to start thinking he is the king of the Jews. But then Jesus is born. 
And when he's born, he comes into this world and he evokes a boatload of reactions. In fact, our outline today are all the reactions that, that the birth of Jesus evoked. Desire, fear, and worship. And we're going to see all of that. We're going to see the desire, we're going to see the fear, we're going to see the worship, all that he evoked. And we're going to see all that in a clash between two kings. King Jesus and Herod. And we're going to see a lesser king react to the greater king. And in this collision, we're going to learn a couple of things here. First thing that we're going to learn is that Jesus is the King of Kings. A news that is common. I would anticipate no one here going, really? I didn't know he was the King of Kings. But here is the second thing that maybe you can forget in light of that first thing. Okay, You know Jesus is King of Kings, but here's the reality then. Do you realize then that the pagans don't rule the world? Do you really believe that? It's amazing how quickly we think the battle's against flesh and blood, right? How amazing we think the battle is against someone else. This person who's ruling my life, or this boss I have, or this family member, or this this, or this king, or this president, or this whatever. They're ruining it all! But wait a minute. Are they? Are they the king of kings? They're the lesser king. Jesus is the king of kings. He rules the world. The pagans don't rule the world. There's the news that, 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 that Christmas, the Advent message, is supposed to anchor in us. The king has come. Rest. The king has come. Okay, so let's look at this. We'll unpack the story. Like I said, a lot of history today. So let's jump into it. Let's look first at the, the Jesus coming and how it evoked desire. Look there at verses 1 and 2 with me. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star when it, when it rose and have come to worship him. There's a lot of information there. Uh, when you are, are, are reading these, these accounts, and especially in these narratives, and they're just throwing out data at you like that, remember that that data was supposed to kind of evoke a sense of emotion and, and memory in you. Similar to me saying, this event occurred in Germany under the reign of Hitler. Okay, so if I were to say, a Jewish man walked into a government office in 1938 under the reign of Adolf Hitler, you would say, ooh, nothing good's going to come out of this story. Okay, that's the kind of stuff we got going here. There's a lot of that kind of background, and we'll see it here. So let me kind of just tick off a few of the details here so that you can understand it. First thing I want you to notice there in verse 1, he says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. Matthew wants to make sure we know he's born in Bethlehem. Why? He's fulfilling Scripture. Micah 5.2 says this is where he's going to be born. A simple point, but a profound point. We're reading Matthew, we realize he's the, he's the one fulfilling the Scriptures. But then he goes on. And he says this, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king. Now when you read that, that's a spot when you're supposed to go, Oh, yeah, Herod. Yeah, he was crazy. Now let me tell you a little bit about Herod. You've got to understand, because as the story unfolds, some fear begins to emerge, and you'll see that fear, and you've got to understand what's behind all of that fear as it emerges. Herod, now as I said, was this king over Israel. And uh, this guy was a study in contrast. On the one hand, was a very good leader, 
and on the other hand, was a very horrible leader. So give you a little bit of background. First of all, let's deal with the, the, dark, the dark side of Herod. He had a lot of enemies, a whole lot of enemies. Uh, the Jews, of course, did not like him. He was a Moabite, which means he had some Jewish blood on him, but he also had Gentile blood, and, and the Moabite story is kind of an ugly story, and, and we covered it a few weeks ago, kind of what's involved with, with the Moabites. And so Herod uh, just was not liked. He, everything he touched, the Jews believed, became defiled. So when he rebuilt the temple, many of the Jews felt like he just was defiled the temple. He just was you know, not liked by the religious people. He also was not liked among the rich, the nobility. When Herod became king, he killed a bunch of noblemen. Now, here's the reason why. You know, we think about somebody becoming a king today, or like a governor, or a congressman, or senator, or president. We assume they get a salary, right? We're paying them a salary to do the job. He didn't get a salary as king. The way he got his money was by taking it from people, taxing people. Herod decided he wanted to be a little bit richer than most people, and so the first thing he did is he found the 45 wealthiest people in the nation and killed them and took all their stuff. Well, that's not a good way to make friends among the rich. You know, it is a good way to get rich. Well, it's not a good way to get rich. Strike that. No one should take notes there. (laughs) It's a horribly effective way, a paganly effective way to get rich. But he did it. Killed them off. Third group of people that hated Herod were his family. Now, Herod had ten wives, but his first wife, ten wives at one time, by the way, okay, and uh, his first wife, um, Jewish woman, uh, his mother-in-law, in this whole story I'm about to refer to, I'm only referring here to the first wife because it gets really confusing with Herod. Okay, so, so his mother-in-law was a good friend of Cleopatra. It was an interesting little connection here, which fits the storyline later, but uh, uh, and Cleopatra had a suggestion that uh, in order to kind of keep your, your family in control, knowing that Herod was going to get more and more wives along the way, just knowing his personality, the best way to keep him in control is uh, to have, this is, by the way, uh, Herod's mother-in-law talking to his wife, okay? Talking to, mother-in-law talking to daughter. And mother-in-law says to daughter, hey, in order to keep control here, you need to have your brother made high priest. If your brother is high priest, that kind of keeps him embedded in the land, could keep him uh, maybe in succession to the throne once Herod dies. So Herod's mother-in-law comes and says, you need to make you know, my son the high priest. Herod doesn't want to do it, but eventually he relents and lets him be high priest. He's 16 years old when he's made high priest. And Herod's thinking, no, nah, there's no way this guy can do a good job. He's 16. The guy nails it, man. He's like, great, everyone loves him. And uh, the biggest event in Israel actually was the Feast of Tabernacles because all these people came in, set up tents all around Jerusalem. It was a big, big, big logistic nightmare. The guy just runs the best Feast of Tabernacles. And all of Israel rises up and says, this is the guy, man. He's incredible. Herod, of course, is getting paranoid. Wait a minute. They're all loving him. They're not loving me. What's keeping him from killing me and taking over as king? So Herod says, hey, you did such a great job uh, you know, officiating this Feast of Tabernacle, come on over to my palace for celebration. So he comes over for celebration, and lo and behold, he dies in the swimming pool. I don't know how that happened, but, uh, but Herod's brother-in-law died. And a uh, little mafia action going on there. Hey, take a swim, uh, you know, some lead shoes. And so he killed him. And, of course, this created a lot of anger, actually created anger among Cleopatra and her, and her soldiers. She sends an army from Egypt to go kill Herod. 
And you can look up this war, the Egyptians coming in to wipe out Herod. God causes an earthquake and kills a bunch of Egyptians. And, uh, you know, they, they back off. But Cleopatra says, if Herod or any of his army comes into Egypt, I will kill them. A few verses later, where is Jesus going? To Egypt, right? God is just setting the table, setting it up so Herod can't follow him there. You know, God's in control of the whole deal, all of history, it's his, and so that process is taking place. But now, Herod, though, uh, has this kind of issue going on here with, you know, his mother-in-law not liking him, and, and so he goes off and gets a bunch more wives, and we'll see in a little bit, his life gets much more complicated. But there's also, so that's a dark side of Herod. There's also the kind of the, the, the Herod, the leader that people like. He also, though, was a very good businessman and brought a lot of economic pro, uh, prosperity to, to the nation and rebuilt the temple and did a bunch of things like that. And so some people, they kind of, they, they tolerated him because at least they're making money. You know, so, so on the one hand, he, you know, economically he was good. Psychologically, he was struggling. Yeah, he had a lot of issues. Okay. So, now... Something happened, though. For about 13 years, big economic prosperity under Herod. By the way, there's a lot of history. We're almost to the end of this historical journey. But, uh, but as we get to the end, you'll see why, it's, why I'm telling you all this. 13-year period of, of economic growth in Israel. Then there's this sharp decline economically, and there's a reason why. In the course of that 13 years, and after all the conflict with his first wife, Herod gets nine more wives. And uh, in the course of, of having a collective of 10 wives, they were all having sons. And so Herod has a lot of sons with different wives. And so the different wives are thinking, my son is the son that should succeed Herod. So now you got this internal competition going. Suddenly now Herod is thinking, oh my, they're all vying for the throne. They're all vying for my position. And uh, I think they're all out to kill me. So he gets really paranoid really paranoid. He ends up building bunkers and going, I mean, just, he gets, he thinks everyone's out to get, and if he felt that you were a threat, boom, he'd kill you. So he is paranoid. So this begins, his paranoia begins a couple years before Jesus is born. And he's in his worst paranoid state at the birth of Jesus. Everyone knows it. Now notice how the story unfolds. Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Think about that. These guys come from the east and they say, where is the king of the Jews? We want to worship him. Now, we're going to talk about what they said here in a minute. I'm just for a moment thinking, I can't imagine Herod taking that very well, right? You know what I mean? Like, like I could imagine people, these guys showing up and all of the aides standing around Herod. This is how I visioned it in my, in my mind. Herod's sitting on the throne. He's got all of his aides and his noblemen and his soldiers standing behind him, ready to protect him and his whole public court of people around him, and up come who knows how many dozens, maybe a hundred of, of these wise men from the east, and they say, 
where is the king of the Jews? And all those guys going, don't say that. You know, don't, 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 don't. You know, what are you thinking? You can say lots of things to them, but one of them is, where's the king? Don't ask that question. Wrong question. I could just imagine that moment, the gulp in the room. It had to have been an intense moment. Very intense. But where do these guys come from? Who are these guys? What do they want? Notice, notice what they say. Where is he who's been born king of the Jews? They understand a couple things. They, they talk about him being king. They talk about seeing a star, and they want to worship him. Now, there's not clear understanding of who these guys are. We have to speculate, because all we know is they're from the east. So, we know what they do, that they're magi. Now, they're not really kings, okay? I know in a lot of the old hymns, they use the word kings and all that, and they talk about there being three of them, and we don't know how many there were. They only just picked three because there's three gifts, and a manger scene would look pretty crowded with like 300, you know, wise men around it, like when you're building the pretty little manger theme for under your tree, you know? So, so it's, it's easier to just put three, one for the gold, one for the frankincense, one for the myrrh. But I'm, I'm guessing it had to be at least 100 of them. They, would, they wouldn't travel with less than that. They'd have a big crew with them at least. And so they're all there. And, and they recognize that a king is born. They recognize there's a star that's involved with this. And they recognize that they should worship him. Where did this desire come from? Well, here's the most reasonable speculation that we have. Because all the way back to Daniel, when Daniel was captured by the Babylonians, he was made chief magi. Okay? He was made chief guy in charge of these astrologers. These guys were astrologers. They read the stars. The only people who were reading stars at that time were out of the Persian area. And so, kind of, and, and who would be the ones who would be familiar with the star? Where does the star come from in the Old Testament? It actually comes from the book of Numbers chapter 24. In Numbers 24, Balaam was asked by the king of Moab to curse Israel, and he doesn't. He blesses Israel, and he says, by the way, uh, a king has come, and he's going to wipe out all the enemies of God, and the star will be the sign. And so, so, so there's this prophecy that one is coming who's going to wipe out the enemies of Israel, and the sign of this is going to be a star. So we have that sign. We have an understanding of the line of David, that the son of David is going to rule on an eternal throne. And we recognize throughout the Old Testament that this is, this is one who's worthy to be worshipped. Psalm 2 would tell us that. Well, who would be people who would be familiar with this? It would be those who had been influenced by Daniel, who was in charge of these magi for years. And so he's teaching the magi, and, and these magi then have the scriptures and they're holding on to the scriptures and, and they're longing for the day for this Messiah to come. And, and, and so from the east, where the Parthenians were from, the, uh, are these guys. And they're longing for this one to come and they recognize something. This is no ordinary king. They didn't do this when Herod was made king. They didn't do this when Caesar was made you know, the emperor. He, you know, when Augustus was made emperor. Why would they come for this one? Because they understand this king of the Jews, the ruler of the world. He's the promised one of old. You see, the, the news of Jesus evoked a desire within them to know and see and embrace this one. 
That's what's there. Now, we're going to see a contrast to that desire among the religious leaders of Israel who knew this truth just as well as these magi did, and they had no desire to see Jesus. They had no desire. There was nothing internally inside of them to say, wow, this is the one, this is the time. We're going to see when these magi show up, these guys aren't motivated to say, we got to go find this one and worship him. They don't even care about it. But in these guys, these pagan guys, they want to see Jesus. These worshipers are coming. Gentile worshipers are coming. And they see the star. They knew he's king. And notice, they don't want to just honor him. They want to worship him. They want to lay down their life in worship of this king. Now, there's the desire. The birth of Jesus evoked a desire in these guys to see this one. The birth of Jesus does not evoke that desire in everybody. It also, though, in other people, evokes fear. Let's look at the next one. Fear. All that history background, I believe Matthew assumed you would have known, so he could just give you verse 3. Notice verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Now, you could blow by that verse pretty quick. But it, it, it warrants pausing. Because notice, all Jerusalem with him. Okay? When these guys show up, they don't just show up, you know, like sometimes, like, like the manger picture you have is like Jesus out there in this barn and three guys walk up with three gifts and they got pointy hands, right? <laughs> they just kind of lay these gifts down. And, uh, and that's just kind of maybe the, the vision you have in your brain when you think of the, uh, the Magi. I want you to picture, we don't know how many, but kind of just knowing how people traveled in that day, you have to picture 100. You got to picture maybe 30, 40 of these guys plus their servants plus all the pieces that would have been involved, knowing they're traveling for a long time. So you're going to have big carts with food and water and, and all this element that's involved with traveling. I mean, you think about it. Go by horse from Iran to Israel. How long would that take you? You know, especially when there's wars and fears and you've got to go around different empires. It's not just going on a highway. You know, you've got a lot going on there. So just picture that. So these guys show up into Jerusalem. Right? They show up into Jerusalem with their horses and everything, and they come in down the middle of the street, and everybody's going, what are these guys doing here? And as soon as they show up, they start saying, where is he who's born king of the Jews? You can imagine the servants talking about this, and all of a sudden everybody going, what is going on? And then you have to also recognize something that maybe you could let this pass you by here. Um, and the best way to understand this is let me just illustrate this for you. Okay? <clears throat> I want you to picture this week, you're at home watching the news, okay? And let's just say two European nations are about ready to go to war with each other, okay? And you're watching the news, and you're like, wow, hey, there could be a war in Europe. you got these two nations warring, and they have the president of one of the nations on whatever news channel you watch. And that president says this, well, we were on the verge of war this week, but uh, we called Steve Leston, and uh, he mediated that for us. What would you think? It'd be kind of weird, wouldn't it? Okay. Now, the reason why I'm telling you this is like, the moment you've, if you would have heard a president or a king of another nation say that I helped solve a war, 
in another nation, wouldn't that kind of give me a little bit of like street cred in the global society? Wouldn't you think, wow, Steve knows the king of this nation. And he helped solve a war. Like, that would be like a big deal, right? And don't worry, it's not going to happen. But I'm just saying, this, this stuff I dream about. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> just joking. Now, here's the reason why I'm telling you this. Well, if you heard another king of a nation reference me, it would change the way you viewed me. When, when our country goes and negotiates with another country, sometimes you will hear people in our country say, why did we negotiate with them? The moment we sat at the table with them, we gave them credibility. We gave them credibility. We should not have negotiated with them because now we've made them out to be a peer, right? If a king calls me and gets my advice, I get credibility. When these guys come in and they say, where's the king? Now Jesus is getting international credibility. This is a huge political moment. Jesus isn't just some little kind of rank-and-file guy coming up from nowhere, like, whoa, where'd he come from? He'll never make it. He's the king, and people from another nation come in, and they say he's the king, and suddenly there's international credibility, especially among the nation that had to get kicked out for Herod to be the ruler. So now credibility's coming to Jesus, right? This is a huge moment. God wants us to see the birth of Jesus really is the coming of a king. And the world took notice. And leaders from another nation took notice. Herod is troubled. And all of Jerusalem has no idea what this psychopath's going to do. Fear has gripped the land. That's the thing. These guys come in. There is fear. There is worry. There's worry among the people. Everybody doesn't know. No one knows what this guy's going to do. And I want you to realize something. Herod, on a very earthly sense, is a very real threat. You've got to store that in your brain. Store that in your brain, because this is going to be important later as, as we apply this. He's a very real threat. And as this story unfolds, just in a few verses, we see how horrible of a guy he is, because he killed all the children two years and younger. He's a legitimate threat. He's afraid, and the people are afraid. So notice what Herod does, verse 4. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So he understands that this is real, that Jesus is, you know, the birth of this one is real. He knows the scriptures. And so he gathers his groups, his chief priests, his scribes, right, all the people who would know the Bible, and he says, tell me, where is the location of this birth? Notice verse 5. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. They quote from Mocha, Micah, (laughs) sorry, that even cracked me up, (laughs) Mocha, (laughs) Micah, Micah 5.2, but I want you to notice something, if you were to look at Micah 5.2, you don't turn there. But if, if you do, you'll notice these guys say more than what Micah 5 says. Micah 5 says, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come one. But they add this little element, 
will come a ruler. They add, who will shepherd my people Israel? They add that to the back end of it. Here's a reason why. I think they're bringing in the rabbinic teaching. Now, the reason why I'm pointing this out to you is because these guys understood not only where Jesus was to be born, but who he is. They understood it. They knew who the Messiah was, what he was going to do, where he's going to be born, when he's going to be born. They knew it all. And when Herod comes and says, hey, where's he going to be born? Here it is. And here's what he's going to do, in fact. We're going to even add that extra teaching. Why am I pointing that out to you? Because I, I sometimes can look at the situation and recognize that these guys still, in their heart, were not moved to go see him. Right? These religious leaders have it all right there in front of them, but it means nothing to them. The only thing we know about them is that they're afraid of Herod. I like to say it this way. Their fear of Herod was greater than their awe of Jesus. Their fear of Herod was greater than their awe of Jesus. My little point here behind that is this. Pagans don't rule the world, but sometimes we feel like they do. Sometimes you feel like your enemy's a person. Sometimes you feel like they're ruining your life. They're the ones, and if only they could get fixed. And what happens? Fear of people become greater than your awe of Jesus to say it doesn't matter what they do. Jesus is king. He is king. So these guys, though, they're in the moment with Herod, and yet they can announce it. They can tell you, here's where he's going to be born. Here's what he's going to do. Let me tell you about him. Let me tell you the teaching. Let me tell you the understanding. They tell us who he is and what he's supposed to do. Yet they're caught in the fear of Herod, and they've lost sight of the awe of Jesus where these magi have this awe of Jesus. I, I, They politically know that Herod's a psychopath. They're globally aware of what's going on here. Yet, they have this awe they have to be with Jesus. Now, notice what Herod does. He tries to deceive these guys. Look at verse 7. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Wink, wink, right? What's he doing? Herod, is, by the way, is very deceitful because there's two things he's doing there. Number one, hey, when did you guys see the star? Why is he asking that question? If they saw the star three weeks ago, then the child's three weeks old. If they saw the star eight years ago, then the star could be up to eight years old. If we're studying through Matthew, we'll discover that Herod kills the children two years and younger because because the wise men said, we saw it two years ago. That's just how the story begins to unfold. We don't see it here in this thought, but if you read the rest of Matthew. And so here's what he's saying. He's saying, okay, if you guys don't come back and report, you know, my plan B is to kill all the children. My plan A is I want you to come back and tell me so that I could worship him, right? Go over there and kill him. But if you don't come back, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to slaughter you. I'm going to slaughter all the children, two years and young. What am I going to do? So he's lying to them. 
So they tell him, but then that, that's what happens. So this is a very evil guy. Why is this evil? He's afraid because Psalm 2 says, why do the nations rage? Why is Herod a madman? He wants more authority than God has given him. Because you see, the pagans don't rule the world. Jesus does. They don't rule the world. Jesus does. If somewhere in our emotions we feel like they do rule the world, our fear of them becomes greater than our awe of Jesus. So, when we see who Jesus is, then our fear of them diminishes. These religious leaders, they're caught up with Herod. They've missed it. So, there's the fear. But there's one more emotion that's evoked, and it's emotion of worship. It's emotion of worship. <clears throat> Notice verse 9. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it had came rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. It's an interesting story. They, these guys see the star two years before this. They're following it basically from somewhere around Iran, all the way to Israel. They get to Jerusalem. The star disappears. Why? Because God is letting Herod know, buddy, you're not the king, okay? So it drives these guys to go into Jerusalem, talk to Herod, create all this angst, confront these religious leaders that they don't care. Then they're told, go to Bethlehem, which is about five miles away. They get out from there, and all of a sudden, boop, there's the star again. And then it says they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. In the Greek, it's not redundant to use words over and over again like it is in English. So when you see rejoice exceedingly great joy, you're talking about like pumped beyond belief, like emotions flowing, tears crying, singing, dancing. I mean, just crazy joy. Just absolutely crazy joy. They, they are just enamored. We're going to see this one. We're going to see the king of kings, man. Like, this is it. This is it. We're going to see the one. And, and so they, they, they follow it. It takes them right to the house which again has been pointed out by many other preachers, you know, this did not happen on the night Jesus was born. Probably somewhere we're in that period of time uh, where, you know, after a woman had a baby, they were considered unpure, impure, so that people had to stay away from them, and, and she's probably just kind of housed up for a while there in Bethlehem until she can go, and until that, till that has been uh, done. So we don't know where they're at. We don't know if the star appeared before she gave birth. We don't know, you know where they're at, but they're somewhere in the first two years. And uh, they get to the house, and notice verse 11, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. So they, they come in, and they bow down, and they worship him. They have recognized that, that this is no ordinary king. This is one worth coming, risking your life traveling to go see. And to say, this is the one. Their, their, their awe of him outweighed any fear in this world. Any fear of a journey to be somebody from the east, the country that would have been the enemy of Herod, to make your way right into his kingdom. And ask him, can you tell me where your successor is? I mean, just think about that. The awe of Jesus was greater than their fear of man. And hence, because of that, they worshipped him. 
And they gave him presents, three of them, gold, frankincense, myrrh. When you presented yourself to a king, you would have brought expensive gifts. Each one of these are expensive. Gold is a metal, frankincense is an incense. You can figure that out from the name, right? And myrrh is a perfume. Now, a lot of people make theological significance of those three gifts. Gold is what you would give to a king. Frankincense is an incense that would have been burned in a temple for worship. So you would have given it to, 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 a, to a god. And myrrh is what you put over a body after they died uh, during the decaying process, referencing his death. Now, some would say these guys knew this, and they knew that he was God, that he was divine, and that he was going to die. Um, we don't really know why these three. You got, you got three options in front of you, right? One is they were just clueless, kind of stumbled into this. Second option is God moved them to give it as a foreshadowing. You know, as you're reading this, you get a little foreshadowing. They might not have known, but God is setting this up so that they're somewhat a little bit of foreshadowing of what's going to happen. Or a third, they knew and they understood all of this. We don't know. You know, I'm kind of between number two and three, you know, somewhere in there maybe. Either foreshadowing or maybe they're aware of something significant. But, uh, but either way, uh, you know, we begin to see that, that they recognized him as being distinct. But notice now how this thing ends. And being warned in a dream, verse 12, not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So God says, do not go back. As the story unfolds, we're not going to go there. Herod realizes he's been tricked. The Magi told him they saw the star two years ago, so he goes in to kill all of the children two years and younger. And, uh, and they go to Egypt, the one place that Herod could never chase him. And God was fulfilling scripture out of Egypt all my child. So you can see it's all right there in the text. But, but for us, what do, we, what do we draw from this account? Well, the first thing I want you to draw from the account is just the responses to Jesus. The Magi had two. One was a desire to travel, to give up everything, to risk their life. Jesus had an, there was an awe of Jesus. And that, that awe drove a desire to push through whatever it took to be with him. And then when they were in his presence, to lay down and worship him because he's worthy of worship. The second response then is that, or the third, or the other response then is that of Herod and the people and the religious leaders, which was fear. Herod, afraid of the moment, afraid of losing his kingdom, and the people, afraid of Herod, afraid of what he's going to do. And the exact opposite's in the people. The, the Magi had an awe of Jesus. is so awesome that we, we must worship him. The people had a fear of Herod. And he's so fearful that this information about Jesus is going to have no impact on my life at all whatsoever. The fear of man is greater than the awe of Jesus. Now, what do we do with this passage? I think there's two things we take from this. The first thing I take from this is, is, is simply this. The pagans don't rule the world. If somebody wants to be in politics, that's great. But I would just tell them from day one of polit- from being a politician, day one in office, kiss the sun, as Psalm 2 says. You're a lesser king. God established government, so it's not a bad vocation. But he did not establish government to replace the king of kings. But to serve under the king of kings. But the pagans, they don't rule the world. That means a second thing then for, 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 for us as well 
since the pagans don't rule the world, <clears throat> then I want to find out where my fear of man has become greater than my awe of Jesus. Who am I afraid of? Who has become my enemy? Who is the one that I am walking on tiptoes around? Who am I the one that I think this is the one who's ruining everything? Who is it? And when you put name or names by that, I can stop and say, wait a minute, they don't rule the world. And so when the gospel pushes me to the edge and says, love your enemies, when the gospel pushes me to the edge and says, do good to those who persecute you, and when the gospel pushes me to the edge and says, forgive like God forgave you, and when the gospel pushes me to the edge and says, I want you to show kindness when people show evil, and when the gospel pushes me to the edge and says, serve those who are going to take advantage of you, what do I do at that moment? If they control the world, then I'm open to all kinds of manipulation. Right? And that's why I don't want to do that. I don't want to serve you because I'm afraid you're going to take advantage of me. But if they don't control the world, what does that mean? That means that I can do it because there is someone who is king, who rules the world, and those people don't. How could they take advantage of me when the one who rules the world said he's going to guard my heart and my mind? How can they do anything to me? What is the worst they could do? Kill me. What's the downside of that if you're in Christ? You see, the news is this. The pagans don't rule the world. Jesus does. That's the Christmas message. He rules the world. So, the good news is this. When the gospel pushes you to the edge, when you're brought right up to that edge, and the fear of man begins to, to, to round itself up, remember, who is the one born king? We've come to worship him. Psalm 2, he rules. God placed him in authority. There's the good news. And therefore, I can then obey, and I can be at peace. So would you just bow your head with me? Let's just pray together. And the prayer is very simple. I think it's a simple prayer for us. It's God, allow my awe of Jesus to overrun my fear of man. Let's just pray that together. Father, I thank you for this incredible account. Herod, fearful that his kingdom's going to run away from him and these magi from the east saying, we have got to find this one. He's the king of the Jews. He's divine. He's the holy one. He's the ruler. Lord, help us to remember the pagans don't rule the world. Jesus does. The message of Christmas is that the king has come. He rules. He reigns. Lord, Help me to have my awe of Christ be bigger than my fear of man. And in any of these situations where, where humans become bigger than you, and we get caught in the moment and the truth of you just becomes a fact we know and can recite, 
Lord, just shake us free from that. And remind us there's something greater than any human being. You who are in us, greater than any force that's in the world. God, remind us often the pagans don't rule the world. You do. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.